Hi, and welcome to Dialogue Out Loud, a podcast about the material we bring to you in our dialogue journal. I'm Jennifer Quist, the editor of the fiction department, and tonight we're going to be talking to two of our fiction contributors, one who was published in our summer edition and one whose work we will see next year in 2024. I brought them together because of the themes uh, that their stories share. This edition was on health, um, a, kind of a rare thing for us to have a, an issue with a theme, but we did have this one. And uh, we're going to be talking about health and Mormon culture, Mormon doctrine, and human experiences. Uh, our first author is Jacob Bender. <clears throat> Um, both of these authors have previously uh, contributed to dialogue in the past. And Jacob Bender is also the author of Modern Death in Irish and Latin American Literature. He holds a PhD in English from the University of Iowa and was born and raised in Washington State. He's currently an English professor at Middlesex College in New Jersey and lives down the shore with his wife and two children. More recently, uh, Jacob has published with the Ships of Hagoth in 2022 an experimental novella called And All Eternity Trip, which you might have heard of when it was um, one of the uh, finalists for the AML's um, Best Novel Award uh, that same year. He's the author of The Last Day, which appeared in our summer um, issue of Dialogue this year. Our other contributor who will be with us tonight is Reed Evan Richards, who lives in Utah, um, is retired, has um, published mostly poetry with um, dialogue in the past, and his uh, short story, Mr. Lind, is upcoming next year. So welcome both of you, gentlemen. These uh, stories have to do um, with our health issue, uh, which our theme was not... Um, very targeted. We mostly just wanted to see where our contributors would take us. Um, we had articles about um, about food and uh, about um, medical treatments, and then both of um, the fiction ones that I was most interested in turned out being about um, men reaching the end of their lives, um, not really in an untimely way, uh, but in the natural course, in the natural courses, it is uh, certainly a fraught one. <clears throat> so, um, Jacob, if you could uh, start us off, tell us about your story, The Last Day. Um, go ahead. Okay. Um, should I start with plot summary? Is that where? Uh, sure. Yeah. Tell them a little bit about it. You know what? If you even got it there and you'd like to read a passage of it, that wouldn't be out of the way, too. Well, the basics is a... Um... A uh, sales rep's meeting with his uh, primary care physician, and while he's there, he tries to talk him in, into joining a MLM, a pyramid scheme that he's currently recruiting for. And um, after giving the hard sell for a few minutes, the doctor finally interrupts him to inform him, inform him that after a battery of tests, he only has about three months to live. Uh, this, of course, uh, shifts his priorities pretty much immediately. And he is now grappling with his mortality as he stumbles out of the doctor's office on his way to church because it's Sunday. For some reason, it never occurred to him that if the doctor's calling him in on a Sunday, it must be truly serious. 
Uh, it's kind of got an interweaving narrative with another young man, a grad student who is visiting his home ward during a semester break, and he is struggling with his testimony, and he's looking for a sign or something that tells him why he should stay or if he should stay or if it's worth staying for. He knows all the arguments for leaving the church. He knows the arguments against them, or at least he used to, but he just doesn't know if he can do it anymore. Uh, the two points converge when the uh, MLM salesman stumbles into sacrament meeting, goes up front, and starts breaking down crying that we're all going to die, we're all going to die. This, of course, uh, disrupts most people's sacrament meeting. Uh, some people this... You know, some people resent that he disrupted their, you know, one quiet hour of the week. Other people were grateful that something interesting happened for once. Some people uh, are wondering if they should bring over meal or something. Uh, as for our young man, he leaves directly after sacrament meeting, heads out to his car, drops his keys. Don't spoil the end. Don't spoil the end. I won't <laughs> spoil the ends. Thank you. Thanks for preventing me from spoiling it. Uh, background. Um couple things uh i attended a church school i went to byui and a common experience at the church schools in the 2000s is you get heavily recruited for summer sales i in fact wrote an article about my experience about that with sunstone once upon a time and what i and summer sales overlaps a lot with mlms and pyramid schemes because they're all doing a hard sell and are often being very flagrantly dishonest in how they go about it so it's like when I first wrote a draft of this story back in the day, I worried that it was a little, I was laying it on a little thick. It was a little heavy when I, when the guy's giving the hard sell, except that I've actually had people try to recruit me into a pyramid scheme before, primarily when I was working for a summer sales outfit. So I'm afraid that um, they don't do subtlety yeah. and I would need to do, bring the same level of blatant brazen uh, laying it on thick as well, the story was going to be true to life in any way, shape, or form. So I based the the uh, salesman who uh, receives the uh, terminal diagnosis, his character's name is Scott Eccles. Uh, I named him for the uh, Rice Eccles School of Business at the University of Utah. Where I, oh, so, okay. where I got That's a master's degree. Yeah, uh, if you've been to a church school are not going to know that. So yeah, good insight. Okay. So, yeah, he's at the U. Uh, I got my English uh, master's degree at the University of Utah and always had to walk past the Eccles School of Business on my way up to the English building. Uh, it's also based partially on an old short story that Hugh Nibley wrote back in the day where he was trying to explain the definition of eschatological, meaning to literally look towards the latter end, something he believes to be his Latter-day Saint should be doing much more of. And so this was in part an attempt to dramatize uh, this very excellent old story. One of the few short stories Unibly ever published, and I wish he had published more because this one's remarkable. I don't remember it off the top of my head, the title, I mean. But the um, the story was an attempt to dramatize something that uh, Hugh Nibley had written out once upon a time. So, you know, mix of fiction and... Um, based on real life. Uh, that line gets blurrier too because the main character in the short story, The Last Day, is also the main character in my novella uh, And All Eternity Shook, published a year ago that you mentioned. 
the um the novella is about a missionary who comes home and finds his mother is dying of cancer and he has a very long and angry prayer with god about it it's an experimental novella it's uh marketed as creative nonfiction because it happened to me i was a young missionary who came home and found my mother dying of cancer uh this was back when i got home from my mission to puerto rico in 2004. so i was very much basing that on personal experience and you know just i changed all the names to protect the innocent protect the guilty so David Warner was me in the original novella. David Warner is, however, is not me in the actual short story. This uh, this is not something I've ever personally experienced. But although I've never been as close to leaving the church as David Warner is in the story, I have thought about it. And so this was me working through my own relationship with the church. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's everything that's wrong with it, but also everything that Harold Bloom once said something to the effect that all religion rises inevitably from a recognition and cognition of your own mortality. Mm-hmm. That we wouldn't have religion if we didn't have a keen awareness of our own death. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I landed with uh, when I was composing this short story, and I'm very grateful that. You saw fit to publish it in this edition. Do you have other uh, questions for me about it? Um, well, yeah, like uh, a few of the little more minute things. Um, I just wanted to ask about the arcade fire reference. Was this before or after the um, allegations against Win Butler of uh, sexual? Uh, this is before. Before uh, okay. the older story. So, yes, if yeah. I were to rewrite it today, I would. Uh, probably work in uh, the, the Wynn Butler controversies. But at, at the time that I wrote it, I mainly just knew Wynn Butler. We all just mainly knew Wynn Butler as the uh, ex-Mormon guy who had a hit indie band back in the 2000s. Right, yeah. Canadian indie band. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all. Yeah. Um, one thing that, that I really liked about this story was the emotional movement through it. Uh, that's what I like about both of these stories. Like, it's very funny in in parts, um, but it's also just uh, so gut-wrenching, like the 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 outpouring of emotion from the the man with that the bad diagnosis at the end, and then from um, from David as well. It must be, I don't know. Does does the the levity help modulate? the gravity or I have to talk to you about that interplay between the, the no. two emotional points of the story. Well, at, at the risk of being a college student cliche myself, Herman Hesse, <laughs> um, uh, famously wrote in Steppenwolf that all humor is gallows humor. Wow. And so I'm not sure there's a clear division between the, um, the humorous and the tragic that in fact um grappling with the sense of humor is partly how we process our own mortality in general i mean there's also just that old cliche of humor is just tragedy plus time yeah and of course not enough time has passed for scott eccles to have um or in, and of course not enough time will pass for him to be able to ever treat this as funny at least not in this 
lifetime, at least not this mortal probation. <laughs> but um, I guess I just treat humor as um, when I do indulge in it, and I don't indulge in it often. I mean, in my writing, I can tell jokes in real life and stuff. But in my <laughs> writing, it's uh, humor is just an inseparable part of the human experience. And uh, if there's not humor in um, tragic situations, then we're not describing real life, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's part of the realism of, yeah. If it I was mean, all tragedy, that's just not how we experience I mean, I'll, at the risk of coming off confessional, I remember cracking jokes at my mother's funeral. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't being light about it, nor were the, nor were my friends my age who were also cracking jokes about it, making light of her demise either, or the timing of how quickly she passed away after my mission. It was just a way for all of us to process it together. So there's almost something communal about the humor experience that is inherently, I don't want to say healing, but is at least it at least makes it more human. Uh, Reed, if I could bring you in here, uh, both of your stories <clears throat> deal with um, deal with the role of work and mm. the choices that people make in the coming of their death, in the health that they enjoy in their lives. Like, um, like in Jacob's story, the simple act of standing up from a chair in a particular Superman pose, um, Scott Eccles thinks that this is going to be something that's going to actually change his life the, and how he, how people perceive him and how he experiences the world. I wasn't um, basing that off an old TED talk that was like the most viral TED talk that was ever released. Really? No, I, I would say go look it up, but I think TED talk gets enough traffic as it is. So, <laughs> but it's a famous old TED talk, and I was. Oh, really? Like 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. Well, it was, it was so real. It was, it was just a completely believable thing that people would be walking around there, you know, intentionally standing up in this way. Um, so, so yeah, if we can just have the, the two of you listen to each other, talk to each other, if you feel like it, I mean, don't think you have to perform for me, but I, it's an interesting thing that both of these stories shared. And I think an interesting thing that runs through American Mormon culture, which is steeped in, you know, American ethos and also in the Protestantism that most of those American Mormon families came up through. And that is this idea that work is is virtue and work, you know, changes everything, affects everything. And it is the factor sometimes in, in even the most horrendous um, things that happen. I was just watching this interview with, in you know, a Fox News panel where someone claim that um, man's search for meaning, Victor Frankl, was about, um, you know, how utility was what let people survive concentration camps during the Holocaust, which, of course, is ridiculous. But it is something that, you know, is kind of a, a truism in, in our culture and, and in um, your American culture at large. So, I don't know, anything you want to say about your story and what you were doing with your story um, to engage with that, if if you were at all, it might be assuming. So we'll start with Jacob and then um, Reed, if you could uh, come in on that once he's finished. 
Okay, so you want me to address the Protestant work ethic? Is that uh, sure? If you if you want to call it that, and um, I mean uh, this is about, the is, is pretty is pretty well read. So go ahead. No, just ironically, the uh, I mentioned that Sunstone article about my experience with summer sales, which was published like ten years ago, is heavily based on Max Weber's Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. So this is stuff that's a lot on my mind, anyways. And mm -hmm. I wrote my dissertation on um, representations of the dead in Irish and Latin American literature, and that was also a critical study I published. And I also draw on Max Weber in that because, in yeah, in our kind of predominantly Anglo-Protestant. Uh, culture in Malu, we despise anything that's not economically productive. Mm -hmm. And so much of why most of our ghost stories are either horror stories or farces is because there's nothing less economically unproductive than a dead. And so when a ghost comes back, they either need to be exercised or the Ghostbusters need to come in or, so they, either, or they need to be revealed as a as a far farce or a fraud, like you know the Scooby Doo ending. Actually, there's no ghost at all. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, like in my uh, critical study, I argue that Ireland and Latin America, because they're predominantly Catholic, um, are allowed to have much more humane and neutral relationships with the dead. They still have horror stories, but that's not the that's not the default for most of their ghost stories. If that makes sense. That's interesting. And so, so much of the Irish and Latin American modernism that I researched for my dissertation is centered on the idea that um, marginalized and oppressed peoples who are constantly being exploited and genocidally eradicated make allies with the dead as a form of anti-colonial resistance, hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, you know, just the wholesale rejection of that Protestant work ethic ethos that if you are not economically productive, then you do not merit either existence or salvation. Mm. So um, as it applies to the story I actually published with Dialogue this last summer, the last day, yeah, what we have here is a, is a man who's fully bought into the Protestant work ethic, that he must constantly be selling, right? That he must, does even, a, even a visit with your primary care physician must be an opportunity to network and grow your network and make more money. And part of what causes him is a, a heart-wrenching disorientation after his terminal diagnosis, learning about his terminal diagnosis, is that he no longer has a sense of where he draws his sense of meaning or significance or value as a human being. And if we want to connect this directly to LDS um, doctrine and cosmology, uh, the worth of souls is great. Now that's a DNC 18, I think verse 20, right? The worth of souls is great uh, before the eyes of the Lord. And that implies that it's not our economic productivity that God cares more about. It's actually just our sheer existence. Mm-hmm. And, but, and of course, this is the same God who tells us that we are all less than the dust of the earth. So, mm -hmm. you know, trying to give us a healthy sense of humility while also trying to reassure us it's, it's never going to be our achievements or our wealth or however you want to classify it that determines our worth. But simply, we all have innate worth just as sentient beings, as children of God, however you want to classify it. 
Right. And this is also what, without spoiling anything, addresses the faith concerns of the young David Warner attending sacrament meeting that day. Okay, you don't have to answer this if it doesn't make sense to you, but does our death add something to our worth? Does our death add something to our worth? That's a super interesting question. I've never heard it phrased that way before. So I'll probably just stumble through an answer. I don't well, your, your story set it up for me, and it's kind of like your your Bloom quote. I was speaking when I read it more of you know God Heidegger's ontology, some more of this, you know I am in dying. That's mm-hmm. how you know you're real. It's because you can anticipate that you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's you know Heidegger being a sourpuss and everything. But in terms of worth, and, and you get this feeling that. That Scott Eccles, who has this kind of cheap selling approach to everything, suddenly it feels different after his death becomes part of this this really short story. I mean, on a more meta level, part of this story was just me trying to force myself to have more charity for these MLM recruiters myself. Yeah. It's like if anyone who's ever been um, on the receiving end of a hard sell for one of these, you just... It's just so easy to despise these people, right? It's like you have your one wild life on this earth and you can spend it trying to sell me this this crap. I mean, come on. But then I have to remind myself, it's like they're fellow children of God, they are fellow human beings, and they are trying to quiet the voice in the back of their head that reminds them they are mortal and they have less time than they think they are the best way they know how. And so whether it adds to our value, I would have to chew that over some more, but it definitely reminds the rest of us mortals to value everyone we meet around us. It's like everyone we meet is both a walking corpse and a God in embryo, like simultaneously. And a healthy awareness of our mortality can help to, um, at least for me in theory, um, value this life more than it. I mean, part of what my dissertation was based on was just the very obvious observation that Halloween and Day of the Dead seem like very similar holidays, right? Day of the Dead from Mexico and Ireland was brought, Irish immigrants are who brought us Celtic Halloween and that, and they brought it, you know, while trying to escape the potato famine when an eighth of their population was wiped out through engineered starvation. So there's the sense that uh, if we value people and their death, we are much more likely to value their lives. And if we don't value death, then paradox, we we also don't value life at all. And let me tell you where I saw that in your story. And that was um, the exchange between Scott and the doctor. The doctor, he mouths the words about how he can't even explain how sore he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, when Scott is trying to engage him on a social level, and I know it's it's driven by the growing his MLM, but when Scott tries to talk to the doctor like they're equals, like they could share a meal together, like Scott mm-hmm. might have something to offer him, stonewall. 
stonewalled from the doctor like oh no i don't yeah. i'll do that with you people i just give you this news and express my sympathy uh and and that it entered into this um you know sociological uh, reading that we could do of these stories as well where how much of this MLM stuff is just trying to restructure restructure a social hierarchy, which is really not working for people and is driving them into it, um, these kinds of things. Uh, so I read that in it as well. And it, it also spoke to this theme of, of the, what people are are worth. And of course, we're worth, you know, we can't be measured our worth. But... Well, I like that you say that they're trying to restructure the hierarchy. And I think that's the right way to phrase it because... Um... It'd be one thing if they were trying to invert the hierarchy, right? There's people above, and I want to pull them down. Completely disassemble it, yeah. Yeah, it's like, imagine you're Captain Moroni, I seek not for power, to, but to pull it down. Mm -hmm. But they're not actually trying to pull down power, they're just trying to rearrange it so that they're at the top of the uh, pyramid now, instead of uh, someone else. And of course, the, the larger issue here is they're... Um, they feel profoundly insecure, and part of that's due to uh, the very precarious economy we're living through right now. But also part of it is even if we had like 0% inflation and high living wages, there's just the fact that we're all still going to die anyways. Yeah. And there's, I've just learned through observation experience that there is almost no, no extreme we won't go to to try and ignore that fact. Interesting, ignore that fact. Yeah, uh, and Reed, I'm going to bring you in here on um, work and death and everything. So um, in Jacobster, we see Scott at the phase of you know his economic life, which is all the life that some people want to have sometimes. We see him still in the accumulation phase. He's building something up. The characters in your story, though, I don't get the feeling like they're a lot older than the people, well, than David, but then then Scott Eccles is in Jacob's story, but they're they're past that accumulation phase and onto one where they're liquidating. And the tidy liquidation of what they built up in their lives is now the virtue that they're judging one another by. That was so interesting um, to show the evolution of this, this economic process. So that's what... Um, I'd like to hear you talk about, but I'll just turn it over to you. And um, you can start at the beginning, introduce your story. Don't spoil the end. <laughs> and um, <No. laughs> maybe give us a talk about it that addresses some of these questions of, of work and worth and virtue that we've already talked about. So go ahead. Okay. I don't, I don't think I've thought about this story very much that way, but um, it's interesting to think about. Um, I won't spoil the end, but I think it's kind of clear from the beginning how it's going to end. Um, we're all gonna the, die. We're all gonna die, right? We're all gonna die. Yes. Uh, just uh, to introduce it, um, uh, some of the events uh, in the story are, and the people in the story are, are people that I knew, and uh, and um, so the story is about Mister Lind, who is dying, and his friend Zainer, who is. He's a bad person. He's very exasperating, and um, they're they're just so opposite from each other. But apparently, they're best friends, if not closer than that. 
I don't know if um, there's enough in the story to clarify exactly what Mr. Lind is dying on. Do you get any sense of, the, of what he's dying on? Bob, he said something to do um, with the sin that was bringing him to dying. And um, I think we're all of an age here where we can remember the AIDS epidemic. Is this... Right, right. Okay. Yeah, mm. I got that. Did you okay, get that? I'm so, um, I didn't get a s strong sense of what he was dying from, but, uh, you know, I only just read it this afternoon. I just kind of assumed that he is yeah. just old and uh, decrepit. Uh, it felt more like a spiritual sickness. You know, he mentions his uh, his son. He doesn't have a close relationship with his sons. He knows he's reasonably <laughs> not going to come out to visit him until he's after he's passed away. And he just, um, and I guess that's what I focused on when I was reading through uh, Reed's excellent story. Yeah, I, I did get it though. And, um, you know, uh, when we talk about spiritual sickness, Bird, he seems to be part of uh, some kind of Christian community. It's the, the characters in it are not Mormon. And that's, right. I, I love yeah. publishing stuff written by Mormons that's not all tagged with Mormon fiction. Right. There's a lot of writers in the world who don't share that um, experience, and I want them to feel like they have a home in dialogue, too. So, you know, we're happy to publish that. But in right. that kind of a Christian community, um, you know, having a homosexual lifestyle might be coded for them as a spiritual sickness. So, yeah, I think it, it's a it's a live tension. So do go on. Okay. Um well, in real life, uh, the person Mr. Lind is based on was a Methodist minister. Um, and I could never figure out, and I don't think the the story ever gives any information because there isn't any what exactly the relationship between Mr. Lind and Ziner was, except that they were friends and, and very opposite of each other. Mm -hmm. um, they're both retired. Ziner's, uh, the story uh, describes how Ziner has um, divested just about everything of himself. He's just uh, all that's left of, of him really is is just the uh, exasperating man. And um, and Mr. Lind is just uh, wasting away and Ziner has no sympathy for that and uh, is a uh, a, a, a part of it, I don't know. I can't read. I don't know if it's fair to try to explain something about somebody that you write about who you really don't understand. <laughs> but um, but uh, the signer is. Uh, I don't know how people end up like that, self-image or something. But uh, he wants to aggrandize himself at Mr. Lin's expense. He's not the. Um, he it, he's not responsible for Mr. Lin's illness, so mm -hmm. he doesn't have to be sympathetic. Kind of um, like the opposite of survivor's guilt. There, he's kind of like survivor gloating. Almost. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah, he, he's. Uh, I know. I, I don't know. And I'll read back to you. There's some great lines in this story. Um, you have. Speaking of Ziner's state of mind, 
The one who can still walk is the one who is not the fool. You know, like just uh, very good. And and then later on you say, faith is a burden that won't budge as Mr. Lynch is trying to die. Yeah. And I get that feeling from, from Jacob's story as well, that not only do you have the reality of, of death coming down on you in those moments, faith um, becomes a lot more, more palpable and also a lot harder to reach based on everyone's experience and all experiences of grief are going to be different. But I mean, you don't have to answer this either of you, but are any of these um, these feelings here ones that you've worked through yourself in your own grieving processes? Um, well, yeah, I, I moved back to uh, Utah to take care of my parents, and um, it was a very difficult seven years. Um, and it's surprising how much uh, how challenging that kind of experience can be to to your faith, to your testimony. And there's no real, um, I, I can't think of any reason why, except just that there's a lot of uh, struggle and a lot of negative feelings and um, just a lot of um, suffering that you that you watch and you um, just I'm not sure how that's supposed to be processed and what to do with it. Um, that Mr. Lynn is kind of a contrast with well the poem that I've been working on about a woman who's coming to the end of her life and is losing her reasons to have faith. Mm -hmm. is, is losing the ability or or the uh, the inspiration that that. Uh, kept her working and gardening and raising her children and well um and is suddenly faced with an end that she doesn't know anything about uh, in spite of things that she's learned and things that she's taught herself but um i i, I don't know what else i can say about that except um Well, I, I, I'll tell you some of the funny lines. I, I like that the the author uh, or this um, the narrator in, um, has uh, expresses opinions at a, at a couple of points where I think it's very funny. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite lines is uh, about the two sons that have not had successful marriages or careers. Which I don't know if anybody thinks that is, is as funny as I do, but um, that the sons had had successful careers—that was a joke. They have not. Yeah, that's a joke. Uh, they they haven't had successful marriages or careers. Okay, sorry. Can you talk to us about the choice um, to to write about a religious community and not have it be? Um, the more a Mormon community, an LDS community, because uh, you know it, it does add something, and it does take away things that we might be too dependent on when we think of literature as Mormon. But but all of that, all of those arguments aside, why did you do it? 
um, probably just because of the experience that I had with them. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know either one of them very well, and I probably only encountered Zyner maybe three times. And, um, but uh, the, I'm, I'm the person in the story who went and visited uh, Mr. Lind in the hospital. I worked in the medical center. It just seemed logical that I would go after work and uh, read in scriptures. I, I drew the the open mouth on, on the uh, respirator mask. Mm -hmm. And um, the first... Um, the first scripture I read to him was, and I thought, will this be comforting or will he think I'm judging him, was uh, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Mm -hmm. But he loved it. And um, and and so I just continued with uh, looking for passages that I thought might help him and, and uplift him. But... Um, so I, I guess the reason I wrote it is partly just processing that and um, understanding that you know you grow up you grow up in Utah and you think well you're either Mormon or you're wrong and uh, uh, and uh, but no Mister Mister Lind had uh, profound spiritual qualities and. Um, I don't think there's any reason to judge him for the lifestyle that led him to the end that he got, came to. It's just no, nobody's business, and Mr. Lint is responsible for his own um, for his own goodness, and uh, which is at the end about all that's left of him is his kindness and, and forgivingness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, one thing that will get you rejected from dialogue fiction right now is the kill your gaze trope you know when there you have an lgbtq plus character in the story to suffer some horrible consequence or to oh. you know be someone who acts something out and we see this again and again and we see this from you know people who are kind of big names in mormon literature even committing this is an error and i think it's an error and um yes but, but mr lynn's story doesn't read like that to me I don't see him as, you know, the killed gay at the end. He's more of the person who's getting to an end of the life that we're all going to have. You know, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And yeah, where does, where do all our faults go at the end of our life? If, you, if you're a, a believing Latter-day Saint, you're going to say, well, they, they go with my Savior. He takes it away. But but you're still you. And uh, it, it, it leaves some uh, questions. No, I... I'd like to add that um, I, I get why Reed uh, thinks the funniest line in his story is his two sons were unsuccessful at, in their careers and marriages. It's um, the protagonist here, by at least by all appearances, has had kind of a failed life. You know, no no one wants to visit him while he's receiving hospice care. At least one of the uh, live-in nurses takes advantage of him, stealing blank checks from him, and it is. Sons not only don't don't really want to deal with him, they're they have not succeeded life either. It's like you, you could rate this character as having been a failure in every possible way in life, and yet there's still obvious affection for this character. And I guess maybe this gets gets back on my own hobby horses, but we all have inherent worth simply because we're human beings, right? 
And so even though this character appears to not have any social value, either familially or socially, who cares? He's he's still he's still a human being, and therefore both his life and his death are worth observing and mourning and celebrating. And mm -hmm. at least that's what I got out of the story when I read it earlier this afternoon. Designer has a bigger challenge where that's concerned. <laughs> but it's it's like we're just given every reason to think this guy is pathetic and not worth our time. But it by the end of the story, he's been completely worth our times. And a reminder, that's how we should be treating all of us. It'd be much easier to find this person sympathetic if he was a famous novelist, right? Or a mil or a citizen Kane style millionaire. Or it's like, no, that's not how most people's lives end. Most of us do kind of end with a whimper, not a bang. And, um, but again, it's, um, humanity has intrinsic worth. However, which way, whether you're, uh, religious or even irreligious, human life has inherent worth. And that's what I thought, that's what I found to be the value in Reed's excellent story. Just affirming that no, no matter how your life ends, it's still worth observing and celebrate at the end mr lind is um i guess you could uh, read it this way he's even kind and forgiving to the tags on the back of his tongue where uh, <laughs> he true. said they don't bother him so he's not going to bother them yeah and, and even signer by the end um has that illuminating moment which his own behavior does nothing to bring about. It's just, you know, that the natural fact is that this is also part of the beauty of creation, this crotchety old man who can't even be nice yeah. to his friend as he's dying. That's still um, so beautiful and so important. Okay. And I'm, thank you for, for bringing this stuff to us in fiction. If, if we had, you know, you sat in a Sunday school and exchanged these kinds of things, we don't really know them. They wouldn't be very interesting, but um, you both managed to put together these stories that are are so compelling and so effectively um, resonant that these simple lessons, uh, <laughs> to call them lessons, but these simple depictions of what we all kind of know about our lives, just how uh, power coming at us again. Um, yeah, I love fiction. Can I just uh, say um, that I... Uh, I, I the, I borrowed the ending from, um, as I remembered, Arthur Henry King's description of T.S. Eliot's funeral, where oh, okay. uh, light light came in. Uh, it's London, so it was cloudy, and light came in through one of the upper windows, and uh, this beam of light just rested right on Ezra Pound on his shaggy head, uh, which is just an amazing idea. That this thing that happened with. Uh, um these these two writers who did very much care about each other and and uh um so yeah i just uh yeah i kind of stole that but but i thought it was really good for to show how how um mr mr lind felt about signer or at least a symbol of it mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thanks for telling me that I wrote Ezra Pound. He and I have got some problems between us, so it's good to hear. <laughs> well, yeah, his politics one thing, but I yeah, I my dissertation, and he gets he gets pretty torn up in my dissertation. Well, <laughs> I, I tore up uh, Walt Whitman in my in my thesis. I've changed my mind about it. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's nice. Uh, anything else either of you would like to to say as we wrap up here? I think we probably got plenty for Daniel to put together, um, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll let you know when it's all ready to to listen to. You can post on your social media, share it with your moms, your kids, anyone. Uh, but anything you'd like to say before we sign off? I, I googled real fast the Hunibly story I was referencing. Okay, what's great? What's the name? It's just it's called the Parable of the Eschatological Man. It appears as Chapter Six of Mormonism and Early Christianity, which is one of the early volumes of the works of Hugh Nibley. It was originally published in 1955. All right, thank you. I had no idea he ever wrote fiction. That's news to me. Thanks. Yeah, my like, <laughs> like one of two pieces he ever wrote. Yeah. It worked it like there might have been one in dialogue. What's that? I'm sorry. Uh, it seems like there might have been one in dialogue. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. You go to the dialogue archives. Oh, sorry. He oh, did do a parody of himself in dialogue once. I remember that. Uh, he, he wrote a he wrote a uh, a parody of his own style of writing. He yes, goes off on one tangent after another after another. That's obviously yeah. very shallow and superficial research so he's kind of beating his critics to the punch there was a, a joke about him um uh, he was walking across byu campus one day and uh, stopped and talked to somebody for several minutes and at the end he said when we met was i walking towards the student center or away and the, the other person said you're walking away and he says oh good that i've had lunch oh wow yeah, it sounds like my kind of absent-minded professor. <laughs> well, thank you both so much, and thank you for these stories. I was so delighted to find both of them in my inbox. I knew right away that I wanted them both. Uh, yeah, so thanks very much, and I guess that's it. Thank you, and thank you, Jacob, for your story. I, that's one of the better stories I've read. Oh, that's high praise indeed. Thank you, Reed. Really appreciate that. Beyond the Bluff, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday. Dialogue Podcast Network.